Chapter 5 Heavens Come Down The old gods are dead. Zeus sits at a barn. He'll buy a thousand and one rings. And the girls who he smiles at will raise their eyebrows and think of the pepper spray tucked into their sleeves. Hera waits at home. She knows the numbers of all the girls. And she has their Facebooks open on the computer. Her hands hover over the keyboard. She wants to tell them that men will always lie. She wants to take her own advice, but she never will. Athena paces through college campuses, handing out pamphlets on architecture. She scoffs at professors simply going through the motions. She carries signs in her hands as she marches through the streets with the students screaming about the newest problem. She laughs wild for these children, these fearless children are her people. Ares walks through the abandoned streets, picking his way through the ruins of an elementary school. The war he stood for warped long ago. This was not brave. This was not heroic. This was brutal, cowardly. Aphrodite narrows her eyes at the boys in cars who yell obscene things. Love and lust have warped as well. She is gaunt, overworked, but sometimes she sees a teenage girl hand her baby to an old couple who have tried for years and she feels young again. Sometimes she sees Ares from across the room as soldiers embrace husbands and wives, children and family and they smile at each other. Still love and war are entwined as they shall be forever. Apollo has always traveled the world with the light. His sun-blonde hair lies rank as he sits atop a bridge, staring from the setting sun reflecting off the polished windows of pharmaceutical companies to the sores festering through the holes in his boots. Hestia wants her family to come home. She waits at the doorway, arms outstretched, and a smile like forgiveness waiting to embrace siblings she knows will never return the old gods are dying the old gods are dead the old gods are us i last left you at the head of a fleet of ships speeding across the cerulean waters of the aegean sea fueled by winds either of righteous redemption or of monumental horror. And as 10,000 ships approach the shores of the largest continent in the world, war begins. On one side stood the armies of Greece, led by kings and heroes, demanding the righteous return of a treasure, a trophy, the return of a queen and a wife to her rightful place by her husband's side, and the return of a mother to her child. For Helen and Menelaus did have a daughter, Hermione. And on the other side stood Troy and her allies from across the continent, led by the crown prince Hector, older brother to Paris. Hector is one of the only decent characters in this story, 
But considering that Agamemnon killed his daughter, Odysseus coerced Achilles into joining a war and Achilles himself didn't care about anything, that bar is pretty low. We also know that Hector was dead against Paris seducing, well, uh, kidnapping Helen in the first place. And that once he did, however, Hector afforded her the respect she deserved and treated her well, unlike most of the other nobles in Troy. So come the war, Hector fought for his family's honour. He was a beast on the battlefield, and Paris was... not. As the story goes on, you'll see he was kind of a wimp. He relied on his brother and the vast armies, as well as the gods who sided with Troy to do most of the work. He stood with Helen on the inside, beyond the magnificent walls of the forted capital of Troy. Walls that had stood for millennia, and if legend is to be believed, walls that were built by the lord of the sea himself. The god Poseidon, ruler of the waves and lord of storms, had pulled each stone and laid it in place himself. The mortar that held it together were his immortal blood and sweat. Those walls would not fall, no matter how red they were painted with Greek blood. Agamemnon and his council commanded one of the most powerful armies of their time. They were fearsome warriors in their own right, but they also had Achilles. His prowess in battle was unmatched. He was so swift no spear would wound him, arrows would veer off course. To the Greeks he was a godsend, and proof that they were on the right side of history. But to the Trojans he was the devil, who at sunset would stand atop the Greek camp and bellow, drenched in the blood of their loved ones. Even so, Troy stood strong. Her walls could never be breached, and the Greeks were forced to attempt a siege. That venture had only limited success, for the Greeks had come by sea. Therefore, while they could prevent provisions and allies from reaching Troy via naval routes, they could not do much about land. And it was through land that the trade routes in Asia ran. Troy was a kingdom that sat at the head of Asia Minor, and had trade relations with the entire East. Kingdoms across the Middle East and Africa had good ties with Troy, and quite a few of them sent their allies to fight for her cause. Remember that silks, spices, and gems from as far as India were traded in Trojan markets. But again, this is not the story of Troy's splendor. This is the story of her despoilment. So as stupid as it might have seemed, the Greeks, with no provisions and an army of hundreds of thousands, laid siege to Troy. They raided bordering towns and villages, plundering and stripping the land for sustenance. Anything they found, they took as spoils of war. Sometimes they were swords, shields, and treasures, and sometimes they were people. The war was a long one. As prophesied by Kalchas at Aulis, it lasted ten years. The stories of the first nine years of the war have largely disappeared, except for a few scattered episodes. So all we need to know about those nine years is that none of the characters I spent so long researching and you guys listening to have died. The armies split up and fought on different fronts. Achilles and Ajax being the most active. According to Homer, Achilles captured 11 cities and 12 islands. Other highlights with no context include Philoctetes. One of the Greek warriors was abandoned at an island named Lemnos. Kalchas made more stupid prophecies that killed some more people. Odysseus was still cunning and also killed some people. The Greek armies were starving and almost mutinied but were stopped by Achilles. Hector commanded his own army exceedingly well and killed quite a few Greeks, etc, etc. The story picks up speed in the 10th year of the war, 
If you remember, a stone snake swallowed sparrows and Kalchas told the Greeks that they would win on the 10th year of the war. So, in anticipation, the Greek army unified once more. It is with this background that the Iliad begins. Though I've been referencing it for forever by now, the Iliad actually tells the story of just a few weeks in the 10th year of the Trojan War. Not why the war happened, not even how it ends. Absolutely no context. But you have no idea how glad I am that I can finally just reference one source instead of hunting the corners of the internet. Albeit one absolute titan of a source. The Iliad has 24 books and hundreds of named characters. It is the oldest extant piece of Western literature. And in comparison to other pieces of Western literature, it is humongous. Add this to the fact that it was passed on through oral tradition for hundreds of years, meaning that someone memorized the entire piece, names, places and all, and told it to others and it just about blows your mind. To most Western historians, all this makes the Iliad unique and amazing. But um, I grew up listening to the Mahabharata. Purely for my own sake, I'm going to make a comparison here. The Iliad from start to finish is around 15,700 verses. The Mahabharata, on the other hand, has almost 100,000. Both were passed down by oral tradition and written down at roughly the same time. But the Mahabharata is a bigger, more elaborate piece in that unique combination of prose and poetry that Sanskrit often uses. It dwarves anything written in the West and its story is still common knowledge to millions of people, even today, 3000 years after its conception. That's almost incomprehensible. So what I'm trying to say is that Indians have been memorizing things better than the rest of the world since literally 3000 years ago. So much so that the shloka format with its style, syllable split and meter is specifically geared towards memorization. Now, moving on from one of possibly the weirdest flexes ever, let's jump into what the Iliad actually tells us. The Iliad starts off with a stupid thing that Agamemnon did. On one of the Greek raids of the towns and villages surrounding Troy, a young woman by the name Astinome was taken. When the generals brought her back to camp along with the loot for the day, Agamemnon noticed her youth and beauty and claimed her for his own. The more stories I read of war, the more I wonder how in the name of all the gods ever the word glory managed to be associated with it. All through history, people have killed their enemies and claimed their women as their own. Usually, there's no one to stop them because all the ones are dead. But this was not the case with Astino. Her father, Chrysis, was a revered priest of Apollo. And unlike Kalkhas, we actually like this one, sort of. Chrysis knew that he could not challenge the commander of the Greeks to get his daughter back, so instead he decided to try and buy her back. He brought the sacred treasures from his own temple, praying to Apollo for forgiveness and presented them to Agamemnon, begging only for his daughter in return. But that didn't work, obviously, appealing to the conscience of a man who killed his own daughter and blamed his priest for making it inconvenient was more a lost cause than this war. God, I hate Agamemnon. Enraged and desperate, the priest prayed to the sun god Apollo, who did the decent thing for once and answered. Now here's a little fact about Apollo. He's a god of a lot of things. The sun, healing, prophecy, 
and disease. More specifically, plagues. So that's what he did. He plague inked the Greeks so hard the army was debilitated. Many soldiers died and Agamemnon ignored all of it because ego. He got away with it too because he was too strong for, his, for most of his generals to challenge and they were too scared to oppose him. But you know who wasn't scared of that sorry excuse for a Greek male? Achilles. After ten days of suffering, Achilles called an assembly of the Greek army and demanded that they address the illness taking the lives of their troops. When Kalchas revealed that the plague was Apollo's doing and that the only solution would be to return the priest's daughter, Agamemnon flew into a rage. He only agreed to return Astinome to her father if Achilles handed over the woman he had claimed to replace her. That woman's name was Briseis, and her position as a pawn that symbolized her owner's power was the reason for the change in the tides of the war. Because Achilles swore to withdraw himself and his army from the war completely if Agamemnon were to take Briseis. Of course, Agamemnon took her anyway, and so Achilles and his armies refused to fight. Moreover, Achilles prayed to his mother, the sea goddess Thetis, to punish the Greeks. That's right, he was so mad at Agamemnon that he was willing to let the Greeks lose the war out of pure spite. So, he told Thetis of his quarrel with Agamemnon, and she promised him that in twelve days, the king of the gods himself would be aligned with Achilles, for he owed her a favour. And by favour, I think Thetis meant this was the least he could do because he was the reason she was forced to shack it up with a mortal in the first place. Zeus, king of the gods, was, however, reluctant to work against the Greeks, that is, help the Trojans, because his wife Hera favoured them, that is, really hated Paris because of the whole apple thing. But he finally agreed. Thus begins the second book of the Iliad, with Zeus's deception. He first sent a vision to Agamemnon, promising his troops victory if they launched a full-scale attack on the walls of Troy at daybreak. Heartened that the king of the gods himself was on the side of the Greeks, Agamemnon proceeded to marshal all his forces, arranging the armies city by city. The king of the gods, though, was not actually on the side of the Greeks, because Achilles. In an uncharacteristic move, Zeus used deceit to try and ensure the Greeks' downfall. Once he sent the dream to Agamemnon, he also sent a messenger to Troy, with details of the Greeks' plans and forces so that when the Greeks attacked, well, it wouldn't go well. But thankfully for the Greeks, it didn't come to that, for when both forces met on the battlefield, Paris called a truce, of sorts. He issued a challenge to the Greeks, calling for a champion to meet him in single combat to the death, thereby preventing unnecessary bloodshed. The Greeks, of course, were all for this because all they really wanted at that point was to go home. However, when the Greeks did select their champion, Paris began having second, third, fourth, and twelfth thoughts because the Greek champion was Menelaus, king of Sparta and husband of the woman he had stolen and started all of this. As Paris attempted to blend in with his troops to make an escape, however, he was cornered by his brother Hector, commander of the Trojans, who admonished, chastised, and basically shoved him into the ring because, stop being a wimp and go lie in the bed you made, Paris. Thus, both champions, the warrior and the wimp, began to fight, and predictably Paris began losing spectacularly. At one point, Menelaus held him by the plume of his helmet and dragged him across the dirt. This would have been the end of Paris and the war, but um, Aphrodite had other plans. Remember her, goddess of love, who was given the golden apple by Paris, etc, etc? 
Yeah, she kinda had a soft spot for the Trojan prince. And so, as he was being bruised, beaten, and dirtied on the battlefield, she picked Paris up and whisked him back to his chambers and to Helen, where she did the godly ancient Greek variation of Now kiss. Priorities, am I right? Meanwhile, on Olympus, the gods were having disagreements of their own. Zeus wanted to end the war on the account that Menelaus would have won that duel, but Hera wanted nothing less than the complete and utter destruction of Troy at that point, because how dare Aphrodite intervene again? Finally, Zeus relented and sent down Athena to rekindle all-out fighting. Athena did so by convincing a minor Trojan soldier to fire an arrow at Menelaus, thus wounding him and breaking the truce. Carnage then ensued. The Greek generals killed some minor Trojans and blood flowed freely. As the battle raged, many gods fought among the mortals, some in disguise and others merely invisible to the mortal eye. Apollo, for example, stood atop the walls of Troy, firing arrows at any stupid enough to try and scale it. The fifth book of the Iliad tells the story of a Greek hero, Diomedes, the king of Argos. Athena, the goddess of wisdom and battle strategy, bestowed Diomedes with strength and the ability to see the gods in the battlefield. But she warned him not to challenge any of them save Aphrodite, for they would smite him like the mortal that he was if he did. Diomedes fought like a man possessed and killed many a famous Trojan. He also wounded Aeneas, son of Aphrodite, who fought for Troy. But just as he was about to deliver the final blow, Aphrodite picked him up, intending to whisk him to safety as she had done with Paris. But unlike with Paris, Diomedes could see her. So as she flew up with her son in her arms, he let loose his spear, which went straight through her arm, causing a rivulet of divine blood to sprinkle on the earth below. Thus incapacitated, she was forced to drop the wounded Aeneas and retreat to Olympus. Before she did so, however, she implored Apollo for help. Not one to say no to a pretty face, Apollo swept up the falling Aeneas to tend to his wounds. In a fit of monumental stupidity that somehow did not get him killed, Diomedes opposed Apollo, who effortlessly pushed him aside and completed the whisking that Diomedes had so rudely interrupted. Aeneas, by the way, is a very important character, for he escapes the destruction of Troy and goes on to become one of the forefathers of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. But again, that's another story. Apollo also called on Ares, the god of war and his half-brother, long story, to fight on the side of the Trojans. So the tide of battle turned. With the literal god of war and Hector fighting side by side, the Greeks steadily began to get pushed back. Morale began to fall, for how were you supposed to win a war against the god of war? He had been fighting for longer than Greece had been a civilization. Every day, the Greeks prayed to him for victory. But how could you win if your enemy was also the god you prayed to? Even Diomedes, who was having an all-round fabulous day, began to bark. Even with Athena's blessing, dare he challenge the god of war? especially since Apollo, the god of archery, had pushed him aside and spared him only in a display of mercy and restraint. Hera and Athena, who Zeus had forbidden from interfering, watched in horror as the people they stood for began to break. Cries of terror and the smell of blood wafted even into Olympus. They implored upon Zeus to let them help the Greeks and finally, Zeus agreed. 
Hera appeared before the Greeks and rallied them under their banner for one final assault, while Athena went to Diomedes. She encouraged him and even piloted his chariot. Thus emboldened with the goddess of battle strategy as his charioteer and protected by her terrifying shield with the face of the gorgon Medusa, Diomedes struck out against the god of war and, surprisingly, landed a powerful blow, slicing open Ares's armor and leaving a gaping slash upon his abdomen. This was all it took to break the hold the god of war had upon the tide of battle. He fled back to Olympus to grovel before Zeus and the Greeks attacked with renewed vigor, turning the tide of battle once more. With their aim achieved, the gods retreated back to Olympus, becoming silent spectators once again. Meanwhile, the Trojans retreated behind their walls, anticipating defeat. A seer advised Hector to ask the women of Troy to pray at the altar of Athena for their victory, and though the queen Hecuba herself and all her handmaidens burned incense at the temple of Pallas Athena, nothing changed. For Athena was firmly on the side of the Greeks because Aphrodite was flimsily on the side of the Trojans. Back in the palace, Hector burst through the doors of Paris chambers where he lay, demanding that he arm himself and come back to battle. Paris though would not, for he claimed to be too distressed by the results of his exchange with Menelaus. The only reason Paris had lost, according to him, was because the entire Olympian pantheon of gods had allied themselves behind Menelaus. This, of course, was not the case. Paris was just bad at fighting, along with a lot of other things. Hector and Helen refused to stand for this behavior anymore. Indeed, the whole of Troy, from footmen to noblemen, were disgusted with Paris and hated him like death. Not only did he kidnap the Queen of Sparta, wife of another man, but now he lay with her in his chambers while the soldiers fought for him on the battlefield? Yeesh, not cool, bro. Only when his brother and Helen heaped insults upon him, his courage and his manhood, did Paris finally deign to don his armor and return to the war. Hector then met his wife, the Lady Andromache, who stood at the walls staring into the plains now littered with corpses, while nestling their infant son in her arms. On seeing her husband, she was relieved, but also distraught, for she knew that he would have to leave once more. She begged him to stay. He was the crown prince, and they had a child. Surely the troops would understand if he led the assault from within the city. But Hector would not. To sit comfortably whilst his men fought was not in him. He would lead his army at its head and meet his fate with head held high, whatever that fate might be. And so, war dragged on. A few more weeks and a few more pauses in the war later, the tide of battle was changed once more, this time in the Trojans' favor. And by the end of the 8th book, ninth, ninth book, I don't know anymore. The point is the Greeks somehow ended up being pushed back right against their ships. The tents overflowed with the wounded and Greek morale was so down, Hades could see it in the underworld. Thankfully, he doesn't interfere in this story because heavens knows we have enough gods. Agamemnon finally threw together an emergency council and suggested that they cut their losses and sail back. I swear the gall of this man. Agamemnon knew full well that the only reason the Greeks were getting pushed around so much was because Achilles was currently camped out in his tent, with his totally heterosexual life partner Patroclus, instead of fighting the war. Yet instead of swallowing down that Mount Olympus-sized ego of his, Agamemnon suggested that they give up? How dare he? The Greeks were in too deep. They had lost too much. 
Diomedes, aforementioned badass hero who by video game logic was now the next god of war, thought similarly and demanded that Agamemnon just please give the boy back the girl he stole from him or by all the gods he would. Anyway, as the gods used the war as their playground, what with Zeus sending thunderstorms and Poseidon sending earthquakes and Aphrodite picking people up off the battlefield, the chosen Greeks, greater Ajax, who fought Hector this one time and Odysseus, trudged up to Achilles' tent, fully prepared to give him everything he had asked for so many weeks ago if only he would don his armor once more and lead the Greeks to victory. But would it be so easy? Find out next time on the final chapter of the story of Troy. I'm sorry, that's super cheesy, but yeah, I'm splitting the finale into two parts because I've realized trying to finish it off here will A make this chapter way too long and B will probably end with me absolutely losing my mind while not giving the characters the voice time they deserve. Bear with me for the finale is all about Achilles. He absolutely loses his mind and it is awesome. Now after the outro. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bookbenders podcast. If you'd like to hear more, follow me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can see pictures and depictions on my profile at the Bookbender with eights in place of the Bs on Instagram, where I also post updates of future episodes. Feel free to shoot me an email on thebookbender at gmail.com with eights in place of the Bs. I'm always curious about what you have to tell me or what you have to ask me. And until you hear me next, this is Pranav, hoping you have an amazing time.